Welcome to the Invisible Injuries Podcast, aimed at bettering the well-being and mental health of veterans, first responders, and their immediate support experiencing post-traumatic stress. Invisible Injuries presents Money Marksmanship, an 11-part series co-hosted by Duncan Buchanan, ex-army officer, financial planner, and investor, sharing his strategies and how to put processes in place to have a better relationship with money and the experiences that having it can get you. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the channel and share it with your friends. Lastly, if you're in crisis, we have links to support in the description. Or if it's immediate, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Here are your hosts, Andy Fermo and Duncan Buchanan. Hey there, you're with Andy. And today is quite a special day. We've got a new series. I want to uh, thank Duncan Buchanan for coming along and we've got a new collaboration. So thanks, mate. No worries, dude. Awesome. So Duncan and I first met um, at a Young Veterans, another ex-services organisation doing amazing things here on the Sunshine Coast last year, wasn't it, mate? It was. Yeah, it was um, at the um, movie Danger Close. Danger Close, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I know. This guy came up to me. The movie had just started running a couple of minutes late, popcorn everywhere, being noisy. That was him. <laughs> so uh, what did you think of the movie, Duncan? It was um, It was. It's great to be able to to watch a, a movie with an historic background like mm. um, like the, the Battle of Long Tan, mm. and filmed by Aussies starring Aussies. Like it was such a good um, Aussie kind of a flick. Yeah, oh, and, and that's that's amazing because it, we, just before we got onto the call, Duncan was telling me something about how when he was deployed, and we we'll probably go through this again um, a bit later on in the call, is um, how he'd missed speaking to Australians when he was on deployment. So yeah. it kind of goes hand in hand when you're watching something like that. Yeah, it does. You absolutely. know, um, and that's good for morale and, and mental health. Now, Duncan. Um, before we get on to what you know, some of the other stuff that we wanted to talk about, tell me about your service, mate. Did you join up straight off the, the cab, or did you get some ground experience first? What's no, your story? Look, um, I I joined up straight from school. Finished year twelve. I was seventeen. Um, yeah. I joined the army at seventeen, um, and uh, went through officer training. Went through the academy and then RMC, um, and went into you know straight leg comms um, yeah. as a as a as a chook. Um, but yeah, I, I my interest and passion within the military was was not really a, a signals based thing. It was just being out in the ground, yeah. uh, leading, experiencing as much as I could. So yeah. my uh, my service had was quite wide and varied. Okay, um, so but before you got well, before we get to that, you know, so what was it, what was it that actually sparked you? You know, motivated you to join the military? Um, look, my. Um, my old man was in the army. He was uh, he reg army for thirty three years. Um, he was a Vietnam vet. He'd done right. a couple of tours of Vietnam. So mm. I think I'd not. I think I knew I'd grown up with an awareness yeah. of of the army um, in particular. But when younger, funny thing, Andy, I I never had any real desire to join. Um, and my old man, having had his experiences that he'd had and his yeah. own uh, serious issues was pretty much dead against me joining the military. So right, it was okay. really, really interesting that come kind of year 12 when I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I had a couple of mates that were kind of joining the military. I thought, hang on a minute, you know, yeah. 
bit of fun, bit of outdoors, yeah. bit of excitement, adventure, which was everything that I was doing anyway. Yeah. Let's go and do this and yeah. get paid to do yeah, it. Get paid. <laughs> get a dollar out of it as well. Get a dollar, is... absolutely. It yeah. was so, so it was kind of just doing it because I didn't really know what else I wanted to do and yeah. found my feet and had a fantastic, uh, like I really enjoyed my time in. Yeah, so was uh, being becoming an officer like on the card straight away when you decided to join, or yeah, like um, like the old man, he he joined enlisted um, and kind of rose through the ranks. Yeah, um, in his long career, and I think probably from what he'd experienced, yeah, he said, "Look, mate, I don't want you if you're going to join, um, don't go through enlisted. Like, yeah, go and be an officer." Go and get some training as well. Get a little bit of, you know, higher education yeah. so that when you do, if and when you do leave the military, you've got some, you know, you've got some tangible skills that you can move into Sibby yeah. Street. I didn't understand what that meant when I was 17. No, no you never do. <laughs> um, but I took his advice and, and went yeah. down that path. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well it, well, it seems like that that path that, that has put you in good stead. So, um, you 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 finished you finished your RMC, mm. and uh, it was a, what was it by accident that you were you know you, you found yourself as a SIG or in communications or it it I once it was almost by accident. Like um, I I didn't want to. It was almost by process of elimination. Mm. I didn't want to go and do loggy stuff. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a burning desire to you know join artillery or, or be a grunt mm. I was I was I was wanting to have something that I could build some skills in that I may be able to use outside of the military right okay um, I was initially going to be a pilot I applied to aviation and been accepted to be a, a, a pilot yeah um, but when the rubber hit the road I kind of realized that once I'd finished RMC I was going to have to spend another three or four years <laughs> training before I could do that and yeah. I was just over being in training institutions I just yeah. wanted to get out in the ground yep. um, and it became a toss-up between engineers and and signals yeah. to, to still get out yeah. and uh, yeah took, took it was absolutely well, well well i'm glad and you know sort of we ended up being posted well your last posting you were saying was it in kabbalah that's right you know so we probably did see each other there through duncan's tail end so um you you served for 18 years is that right yeah that's right all up yeah and uh and three deployments yeah yeah three deployments so whilst you know i started as a chook um and whilst i kind of did my first 10 years in what you know in army talk we talk about straight leg comms yeah um, I did my last eight years or so in the in the military intelligence space, so specifically in the signals intelligence space, and that was all um, f- based on I had a deployment to uh, um, a posting to Darwin to two two cav regiment. Oh yes, yep. and I worked at two cav on the Aslabs and yep. and loved it. You know, being yep. a crew commander, yep. um, got my crew commander quals and and had my own uh, my own troop. Yep. Um, in two cav, but at that time at one brigade, uh, I ended up bringing in the concept of um, of uh, back then it was called EW in my space it was signals intelligence onto the battlefield yep. and actually hooking up our slabs to do if we're yep. going to do a re- re- reconnaissance role which up till then was l- nearly all uh, visual yep. in the recon role I started bringing in electronic reconnaissance and yep. that was a concept that came in. Um, that the then brigadier um, Dave Hurley kind of went, "Yep, this is pretty cool." Yeah. Um, my CEO said, "Hey, this is pretty cool." And from that moment on, my my career in the military yeah. transitioned out of straight leg comms, and I spent the next eight years just doing 
SIGINT yeah. stuff. Well, and, you know, I've, I've spoken to our audience many times about this. I, I love doing that sort of stuff. I love being the bear, even though I ended up getting qualified as a, as a commando and I could dip in. And one of the things for me and the capability that we had down in, in uh, with two commando or four RAR commando before they changed over um, is that you got to do all the cool sneaky peaky stuff and I love doing you know I love doing man pack stuff even more than the vehicle stuff but you know when you when you talk about the Aslabs I'm like oh geez really I wish they had them you know sort of because they were mounting them onto the four wheel drive onto the um, to the Land Rovers at the time but I thought it was an amazing capability to be able to fuse them all together and it took you know even from those days that it was early on man hey like that was like Breakthrough. People are looking at you going like you had two heads. Yeah. Well, who, who Whereas are you? Now, well, nowadays, it's, yeah. it's, you know, they've moved, migrated onto Bushmaster and it's just oh, one of those standard, yeah, that's right. standard things. Yeah, that's right. We yeah. won't say what the bitter kid is, but, you know, like, yeah, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it was really cool to be able to, to really expand that reach and then yeah. actually do a crossover with, with the, um, the Arms Corps guys to be able to really hook that in. And mm. I think that was a really cool job to be able to do that yeah, because it, it gave the commander a really good thing of the battle space. Now, East Timor, mm. when you, when you, that was your first trip. So yeah. that was my first trip. That yeah. was back in 99. So yeah. that was right from, the, right from the very start. And how, Australia how, deployed. Yeah. How was that, how was that first, you know, um, your, your, your uh, expectation of being deployed? Was, was when you landed in East Timor... Um, yeah, was yeah that- like it, uh, I didn't know what to expect. It um, again, in hindsight, it was fantastic. Um, it was I was the serving as the operations officer for a, for a um, one four five six squadron, and we had spent I had spent the, the previous eighteen months before deployment yeah. training the squadron. We were an independent squadron, so we were yeah. very very large. Training mm-hmm. these guys into what I n- expected them to need if if we'd ever deployed. And up until Interfet, the Australian Army hadn't deployed since mm. Vietnam. Mm. So it was a long time between drinks. It, it was a long time. But, I, you know, I said to these guys and girls, we're going to train as if we were going to deploy. Mm. And it was interesting that 18 months of me absolutely smashing into them a really, really high level of training, yeah. Interfet turned up. And, you know, off we went over to, um, to East Team or we got there... You know, D1, D plus one, and it was a really interesting experience um, landing there in country and then having what for me ended up only being four months because it was from there that I got posted back to 2CAV. Right. Mm. So that sort of on deployment posting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, oh, great. And, and so with that, what was that feeling of being able to really start using that capability then when, when you, you know, um, after doing all that, that work up, you know? Oh, like the, the, the kit that we had, the training that we had was amazingly fulfilling. And as, as, as Kaman would be able to look at what, what the guys and girls were doing, they were so confident they were so calm. They were so efficient. Yeah. It, it was like, you know, it's that sporting thing where you train and train, you hit the grand final and you're like, all the hard work yeah. has been worth it. That's yeah. exactly what the deployment was like. It's yeah. completely paid off. Yeah, because it would have been, you know, like you said, at that point in time, you know, the first time there was really like a, like a full deployment. From, from, you know, since Vietnam. I mean, mm. obviously they had the peacekeeping um, in the, uh, peacekeeping missions as well. But, you know, East Timor, big large force over over there. 
Yeah, it, really it, cool. it was great. It was awesome, Andy. It was a great experience. And, and to see the way that Australia led that so, so professionally mm. with the rest of the international community yeah. um, was, like, it was just done very, very well. Yeah. It, was, it was well done from everyone at all levels. Yeah. And so four, mu- four months later, back to, back to 2CAV, yeah. you mentioned that there was you know, another, uh, in, in 02, that you went over to um, Afghanistan. Yeah, so at the end the of, at, at the, towards the end of my 2CAV posting, I was given an overseas exchange. So I was fortunate enough to be sent um, to work with the United States Marine Corps. So I went over as the, the token Aussie um, to a Marine Corps battalion. Where? Uh, based in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. So I just dropped that in. <laughs> right. Based in Hawaii. Um, on Oahu? And, yeah, the, the unit was based on Oahu, actually on the eastern side of Oahu. So for, for those of you not familiar with Hawaii, you would have heard of Waikiki and Honolulu. Um, that's like the, the Gold Coast, right. if you like, of, uh, of Hawaii. The real Hawaii is somewhere else. So there's a, a Marine Corps base on the eastern side in a place called Kaneohe Bay. And, um, and that's where this battalion was on the Marine Corps base. Yeah. So I was over there um, doing, uh, working as their assistant operations officer um, and Marine Corps is, you know, to work with the Marines is like working with the ADF on steroids. Like, really? How so? The, well, I mean, the, just even in, in numbers, the Marine Corps, the size of the Marine Corps is, is larger than our entire defence force. Um, and that's just the, and they're the smallest of all the services, funnily enough, yeah. eh? But you know they're so like the the Australian Army, like they cross train. Mm. They're very different to the US Army. The US Army are very one role at a time. You know, yeah. you're the driver, you're the sig, you're the first aid, you're the sniper, you're the you're the machine gunner. Yeah, and they don't cross train. Like they just if the vehicle breaks down, yeah. they all just stand around and look at the driver going, you fix it. Yeah. The US Army, the US Marine Corps is just like the Australian Army. We just cross-train within yeah. an inch of our lives. So these guys are motivated, they're intelligent. Yeah. Um, the battalion that I with supported two different theatres back then. It's changed since I left. It actually changed the, the year that I left. Mm. Um, they supported both the Pacific Command and Central Command. So we had... Uh, Marines, soldiers deployed throughout the Pacific theatre, Korea, Philippines, um, a bunch of other places, um, and as well as Central Command. So that's mm. looking after everything in the Middle East, um, wow. Northern Africa. Um, so it was, for me, it was this massive strategic vision mm. that you boiled down into uh, up to a dozen different um, tacti- tactical deployments happening in places all around the world so it was a, yeah. an amazing personal experience yeah and that led on to the i arrived in hawaii on the day that the u.s landed in kandahar yeah um straight after three months after 9 11. wow so it was a really surreal experience the, the americans were after oh, blood yeah. essentially oh, yeah. so my time 2002 2003 serving with the u.s was a highly a volatile oh, yeah. Um, heavy military focus. Yeah. So heavy you were holding on to the dynamite there going, with well, oh, you know, the fuse was already lit. The fuse was lit and I was like, I'm going to strap, <laughs> strap in for the journey. Yeah, you come, come in for the ride, hey? going to be insane. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So during my time, the the focus transitioned from PACOM to, to CENTCOM um, and I found myself doing more and more work in lead up for what, what originally, which, which then became the 
the invasion of Iraq back in early 2003. So wow. I uh, did a reconnaissance with my boss into Afghanistan in late 2002. Yeah. Um, yeah, middle of winter, yeah. really cold. Yeah. Um, and then went back to Hawaii and then effectively deployed the battalion. We were the only uh, Marine battalion in Hawaii to deploy. Um, and we deployed the uh, start of February 2003. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the one of the things there. You know, I've always wondered uh, from from an officer's perspective, and, and and being in that sort of stream, you know, when you're when you're a um, when you're another rank, you know, you kind of got to go and hope for the you know the, the trips, and then go as a large body. But as an officer, there's opportunities as well to be a, as an attachment for your specific role into certain spots. Yeah. You know, which which gave you those really cool opportunities to be able to be posted. Um, you know, to to Hawaii, and then get those opportunities to work with the Marines over. In, in Afghanistan and Iraq, yes, you know, because they were pretty much back to back. Now you mentioned some of the stuff there um, with with the Australians. Now, now, give me give me the daily life there. You did, you know, so what was so de- deployed into Iraq, like for, for that one, for example. We were all based in Kuwait until mm. the until the war started, which yeah. was around about the tenth of March, um, if memory serves me, two thousand and three. Yeah. But up up till then, um, it was uh, the Marines had a, a, a key camp which is called Camp Commando um, the US Army had one but the Aussies had had a, a little bit of a, a, a small setup of small yep. small elements yeah um, of discrete elements and being an Australian just surrounded by Yanks yeah it was interesting but as I was you and I were chatting before one thing that I didn't realize until I deployed was whilst I was surrounded by people mm. because they weren't Aussies I felt so alone yeah. I felt so isolated and it, it didn't become apparent mm. until we started moving into to preparing for under contact drill until yeah. we started actually receiving incoming scuds and missiles. This was before the war kind of kicked off. And your, your basic Aussie training, you know, run down, mm. crawl, aim, reserve, fire kind of concept, yeah. they did stuff completely differently. Okay. And it was only then that, you know, shots get fired and they're off doing basic contact drill, yeah. which is completely different to what my body was <laughs> instinctively <laughs> doing without thinking. Yeah. And it was like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. And even if when you just needed to offload and chat, it wasn't the same banter. Like, you, did, yeah. you weren't able just to banter with them as mates and talk about deployment and like stuff that was Australian based. Yes. Yep. Because they had their life and they had all their experience, and I was this one guy yes. with a life experience completely different to theirs, mm. and it was really isolating. It was quite emotionally draining because you didn't really have mm. a mate. Yep that you could just sit down and chew the fat with. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So, and, and, and then that one there before, you know, talking about, our, you know, uh, the, the other coalition guys, the other Aussies that you'd go and mm. visit to combat that. Now, as an officer, one of the things before we got on the call as well is, you know, um, you're always there kind of leading other people. But what, what, was, what was some of the stuff that you did to be able to vent and, and speak with other people as well. What, what was some, some of the tools there? Because as an officer, who do you, who do, who do you speak to when, when you need to be able to offload? And yeah, vent? I guess you know, sometimes as a, as a good commander when you're leading, you know, there's a bit of a saying that you know, leadership is lonely at the top mm. because it's, um, you sometimes don't know who you're going to talk to when, when you're in your platoon. Yeah. You, you've, kind of, you've got this broad section of, of people. When, when you're in your regiment, you've got your broad section of people. Yeah. 
Um, so how did I combat that? Well, f for me, especially on deployment, it was either finding the, the key personalities within the, um, the Marines that I was working with mm. that I had a, a level of trust yeah. with. And I, you could just, you know, when you meet people, you just kind of feel like, yeah. I think I can relate to you. Yeah, yeah. It was finding those handful of people that mm. were, were quite grounded and that you could relate to. But also for me, it was little things like um, getting out of the marine compound when I could and actually heading into the, the Australian little section that they had um, and just be able to listen to a, an Aussie twang, yeah. to talk to someone that the only thing I had in common was we were from the same country and we yeah. sounded the same. Yeah. But to be able to share a Tim Tam and a, and a Vegemite on toast and to talk about the AFL yeah. was, it was just soul-fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of the only way that I could do that other than just um, writing. Like, I basically kept a diary, and I okay. just I would just write in my diary all the time, mm. and occasionally we were able to send um, emails home. Yeah. Obviously heavily um, filtered with yeah. what you could send, yeah, especially right. in the TSSI space I was working in, so you had to be really careful with what you said, but it was just a way to try and offload... Offload emotion, in fact, even now as I say it, mm. it wasn't so much me wanting, part of it was me wanting to share with other people, this is what I'm going through, because you also have loved ones at home that have no concept of what you're doing. Yeah. So they are also living in a state of yeah. a high level of anxiety. Oh, of course, yeah. Because they don't know what you're going through. Yeah. So for me, it was, I want to make sure that they're feeling okay yeah. by me saying I'm okay. Yeah. But it was also a cathartic process to allow me to kind of just... Dump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that that's right. I mean, you know, there is there is a big one there, the journalism, jur journalizing, and everything. And and you mentioned before that really, um, f from having you know be being a leader and sometimes being affected, you know, with with uh, with with PTSD and some of the traumas that you would have experienced overseas. When was it that you actually knew? You know, um, did you did you sort of seek any help? prior to discharging or, or afterwards or... Andy, I, I don't think I really um, started realising that I had a few, a few, a lot of, of challenges, yep. probably until a couple of years after I came back. Yep. Um, immediately after my return from deployment uh, and we finished up in Hawaii, I was back in Australia, I was then serving at Pakapanyal. Um, for all people who like Puckapunyal, you're all weird and strange. I reckon <laughs> it's a it's a crappy place. But um, I was in Puckapunyal, and the, I think the thing that kept me going for those couple of years that I was there was that was the year that both of our children were born. Um, right. Like within six weeks of coming back to Australia, my son was born. Yep. Um, and 16 months later, my daughter was born. So they were quite close. Yeah. So being a brand new dad had enough distractions for me that I, I wasn't really mm. emotionally processing what I, I had just quite recently been through. Mm. Um, and it was probably only a couple of years after I'd come back and I'd, I'd headed back up to, to Seven Sig and, and moved into a command position that kind of life begun to yeah. slow down, I think, a little bit. <laughs> and it was really those moments that I felt that um, I wasn't really in control of my emotions yeah, uh, and I was showing up at home. Really, um, I was I was getting angry. I had a really short t fuse. I became aware of, of of sounds 
So yeah. those, f- f- some people would appreciate that 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 sudden loud noise. Yeah, you know, my heart would pound through my chest. I would get clammy. I'd almost be looking at where do I where do on the ground do I fall? Mm-hmm. Um, when we were deployed, the Marines had a when we had like scud alarms or incoming missile alarms, and we were camp based. In fact, even when you deployed, they had the same concept. They'd sound like a like a wail of a siren to indicate, you know, move to scud bunkers and because and, we were often in um, MBC kit. So it was, you know, you had all your MBC yeah. gear, time to don your mask. Right. So that was, that was that Pavlov's dog trigger. You heard a siren and yeah. you're like, holy crap, yeah. something perceptionally mm. bad's about to happen. <laughs> so back in Australia, when I would hear an emergency siren, an ambulance or a police car, a fire engine, that would set me off. I hated um, crowded spaces. Yeah. With lots of people, I did not mm. like it. I did not want. I would not go out to parties. Mm. I would stay at home. If I went anywhere, I'd be going. Where are the doorways? I want to be able to see my exit. I didn't like having things to my back. Yeah. And finally, I think the tipping point was my wife just saying, "You're just not the same anymore." Yeah. You, you've got to talk to someone. Yeah, and, well, and and I'm glad that your wife did. You know, she said, yeah. "Hey." Duncan, pull, pull, pull your finger <laughs> pull your, out, pull mate. Your head in. <laughs> pull your, pull your head in, dig. Yeah, that's all right. And so, what you know, did you go and seek anyone else, or did you just start really being much more aware of what you were? For for me, I became far more aware of what I was. I actually took it upon myself to do really get heavily into a lot of self development. I, I wanted uh, to understand mm. um, mindfulness. I wanted to understand how my brain was working. I wanted mm. to understand. You know, how could I be a better version of myself? Um, yeah. And it was also that realisation of, of, for me, the most important thing, I was still relatively new dad. Yeah. And what was so important to me was to be the best dad I could. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Which transitioned to be the best husband I could. And the military environment, to me, was not really allowing me to have those experiences and that was kind of really what what led me to go you know what i think it's been a good career yeah before i'm you know bitter and twisted and broken and pissed <laughs> off with the world i'm gonna leave on a high yeah um but but it's time i want to spend more time with the people that i love the most yeah and it was really at that point that i started seeking some professional help and and that was having you know psychs look at you go dude yeah you know i don't want to have I don't like the label of PTSD. Um, yeah. I think it is a bit of a, a label, and I even don't yeah. like the D on it. I don't yeah. think it's a disorder. Um, yeah. It's it's a, an illness. It's temporary. We can yeah. all transition out of it. Yeah. And I certainly um, did a lot of work on that. But it was at that moment, Andy, that I yeah. kind of, when someone started going, yeah, there's a reason why you're yeah. so jumpy and you're so angry and yeah. you're so confused. And for me to begin to understand, oh, that's yeah. why. And once I knew that that was it, I chose to do something about it. Duncan Buchanan has mentored small business owners and individuals for years in how to improve their personal and financial wealth, has an Australian credit licence, 416629, and Certificate 4 in Financial Services. See more information at www.duncanbuchanan.com.